press the follow or subscribe button in your podcast app to get daily updates from the front. From the journalists of The Australian, here's what's on the front. I'm Claire Harvey. It's Monday, December 19. Australia's dream economic run is gradually winding down with a stark new forecast showing gas, iron ore and coal export earnings will fall by nearly $70 billion in coming years. Russia's invasion of Ukraine sent commodity prices soaring, dramatically helping Australia's budget bottom line. But global supply is now increasing and demand is on the wane. The big unknown is China's emergence from COVID-19 lockdowns. If Beijing eases restrictions quickly, demand may boom again. A high-powered Australian business delegation is off to Beijing to mend relations strained by three years of security tensions and the pandemic. The CEOs of Rio Tinto, BHP, ANZ and others are likely to join the delegation organised by the Business Council of Australia. And there's speculation Foreign Minister Penny Wong is also planning an official visit. Criminal charges are inevitable after a riot by hooligans at a soccer game at Amy Park in Melbourne over the weekend. We'll be looking at all of those persons who are involved. We'll be looking to issue fines to every single person that we can find. If we can identify them, we will be investigating that and we will be looking to prosecute where we can. That's first up. Australian football is reeling from disgraceful scenes over the weekend. More than 100 crowd members stormed the field during a match between Melbourne Victory and Melbourne City. They threw missiles, including distress flares and metal buckets, at players. This is entirely unacceptable. One player, Melbourne City's goalkeeper Tom Glover, threw a flare back into the crowd and then he was targeted by the angry spectators. Glover was struck in the head by a metal bucket and had to be helped from the field, bleeding from the head and suffering a likely concussion. The game had to be abandoned after just 20 minutes of play and the episode has prompted yet another wave of soul-searching in the football community. Australia has a long history of soccer violence, with an explosion every few years among fans whose preferred weapon is maritime flares, the handheld devices that emit smoke or light, and they're illegal to use except in an emergency. Soccer fans brawling and setting off flares. Mounted police and security guards tried helplessly to put a stop to the violence. Football Australia CEO James Johnson on Sunday condemned the actions of those involved while announcing multiple investigations. This is an element that goes beyond football. It's an element that infiltrates our game and that really try to ruin it for the two million people who love our sport. And it's those people that we will be targeting in this investigation and who we will weed out of the sport. Victorian and New South Wales law provides a $5,000 penalty for improper use of a flare, but they're so ubiquitous, the stadiums have sand-filled buckets on hand to extinguish flares at major matches. On this particular Saturday night, it was those buckets that turned into missiles. Fans from both teams had thrown flares onto the pitch and were planning to participate in a protest to walk out of the stadium at the 20-minute mark. That's because football's governing body gave the A-League Grand Final to Sydney for the next three years. 
That announcement might seem unremarkable, but for football in Australia, it's been a tradition that the grand final location is based on merit. One of the two top teams at the end of the season earns the right to host the event. Football fans exploded on social media with anger, disbelief and ridicule, and other fan groups decided to stage peaceful protests by walking out of matches at the 20th minute. Their mantra, the game is nothing without fans, became the theme for a week of protests around the country. In Melbourne, a group of fans took things into their own hands and ended play at the same time as the walkouts were supposed to have happened. It hasn't been long since the Socceroos' dream run at the World Cup seemed to revive Australia's fraught love affair with football. James Johnson was clear that this incident would not be taking away from the strides made by the team in Qatar. I would say this matter doesn't reflect the, the, the broader game. We saw in Melbourne at Fed Square thousands and thousands of great football fans that came together to support the Socceroos. We saw this in, in other cities around uh, Australia, Sydney, Brisbane, and, and so on and so forth. These are fans, and these fans cannot be branded or painted with the same brush as those individuals that invaded the pitch last night. Coming up, a new instalment of The Twitter Files. So, what are they, and what is Elon Musk up to? Access a world of true crime podcasts on CrimeX Plus, where award-winning journalists take a deep dive into unsolved cases. Every week, we're waking up to a dead woman, a dead mother, sister, auntie, grandmother. It's not good enough. From the team that brought you The Teacher's Pet, Shadow of Doubt, and Dying Rose, unlock early, ad-free, and bonus content from brand new series and flagship shows such as I Catch Killers with Gary Jubilin. One was shot in the mouth, and I thought he was dead. Another one been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for CrimeX Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime. Writer and journalist Matt Taibbi has been reporting a gripping series of internal documents and communiques known as the Twitter files. He's just dropped a sixth instalment, an insight into Twitter's dealings with the FBI. Taibbi said the documents revealed the FBI's contact with the social media giant over the past two years was constant and pervasive. Our US correspondent Adam Crichton has been following this story closely. Adam, what are the Twitter files and what have they told us so far? So these have been dribbled out over the past couple of weeks. And Elon Musk, when he bought Twitter, the $44 billion purchase, enormous sum of money, of course, he did promise that there'd be transparency, that he'd be releasing documents. Uh, He didn't specify at the time how he would be doing that, but it turned out in the end that he decided to give the documents, or at least give access to the documents to a set of journalists. And these are independent journalists who don't work for big media companies. The two main ones are Matt Taibbi, uh, who used to work for Rolling Stone, and Barry Weiss, a woman who used to work for the New York Times. And they both have their Substack following. They have a lot of followers on Twitter. So they're quite established journalists. They cover different aspects of relations between Twitter executives before Musk bought it and parts of the US government. 
And then some of the other files basically reveal the internal discussions amongst Twitter executives and staff leading up to the removal of Donald Trump and the banning of his account on the 8th of January. So the only condition Musk set for them was that they had to publish the revelations on Twitter. It's not really a mechanism for breaking stories because everything's, you've got to be maximum 280 characters, of course. But nevertheless, they did that. But what shocked me is how, you know, big swathes of the media here in the US have completely ignored it. Why do you think American media are responding like that? Usually when there's a huge drop of files like this about a company that has such a huge public presence, it's headline news for days. It goes back to the Hunter Biden laptop story. So this story was covered by the New York Post just before the 2020 election, just a few weeks before. It basically alleged the Biden family were corrupt based on Hunter Biden's laptop, which was found in a computer store in Delaware. So that was the New York Post story, which presented emails from that laptop and stated that they showed corruption by Joe Biden. That story was suppressed by Twitter and by other social media companies as well. It was attacked by the rest of the US media as, as a misinformation, as a Russian plant, etc. Over the past few days, President Trump has highlighted a report by the New York Post about Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son. There are major questions about the origins and the accuracy of that story. Of course, as it turned out, that was completely false and the laptop was genuine indeed. It's fueled salacious headlines and alleged conspiracies, much like Hillary Clinton's emails before them. But now an NBC News analysis of the computer's hard drive has revealed something that does merit scrutiny. But the first set of Twitter files is all based around the laptop. There's a lot of hurt feelings in the US media, if you like, media companies. They attacked that story and they're embarrassed by that, of course, because they have had to subsequently admit that the laptop was genuine. So there's a lot of bad blood about that particular story. So the other interesting thing about the Twitter files is that they come from Elon Musk, Twitter's new CEO. What's he up to? So Musk first made a move for Twitter. He said publicly that the reason he wanted to do it was because he was very worried about free speech in the US and in the world more generally. He saw signs that it was declining, that the big social media companies were both independently suppressing it for political reasons and also perhaps even doing the bidding of the government, which is even worse in some ways. So that was his assessment of the situation. He's been adamant that he's going to make it a neutral platform that is fair to both sides of politics. That's his goal. And I think it's probably fair to trust him on that. That's what you can see from the Twitter files. Musk is fighting fires on a lot of different fronts at once. He's fighting with journalists, banning and then unbanning people, claiming his family is being targeted by people who track his jet on Twitter. So where's he going next? There are certainly a few more instalments to go of the Twitter files. That's 100% certain. Just a few days ago, Musk did a controversial tweet where he said his pronouns were prosecute Fauci, which attracted a lot of attention. I mean, he's under a lot of pressure because Twitter's a global presence. And, and for instance, the European Union which is very powerful, of course, it sets rules for hundreds of millions of people in Europe, it's basically told him that if it's going to operate in Europe, he has to have strict policies on speech, on regulating misinformation and hate speech and so forth. So he's going to struggle a bit. He may have to have different rules in different parts of the world, uh, depending on what what the governments uh, want. But in the US, at least, he's pretty adamant that it's going to be a lot freer. Adam Crichton is The Australian's US correspondent. 
There's less than a week to Christmas and hopefully for you a summer holiday. The Front will be here every weekday over the silly season. And of course, you can check out all our journalism anytime at theaustralian.com.au. My name is Manny Karoudis, and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts.